Imagine you're a master thief, and you've set your eyes on the score of a lifetime. You've spent months and months and months staking out the bank that you've determined you're going to rob. The bank? Well, let's say in this little hypothetical that it's one of a country's top financial institutions. So you're setting your expectations accordingly. Surely, they've got things locked down, monitored, and tighter than you can possibly imagine. So we're getting closer and closer to the day of the operation. And as it approaches, the unthinkable happens. The master key that you've carefully crafted to get through the first layer of security has leaked to the world. The bank knows about it, and now part of your plan is out in the open, even if they don't directly know what could happen. But you decide you're going to take the risk. The night of your big heist, you insert the key, and voila, it works. You're in. On to the next step. And then the next step. As you're walking through this behemoth of an institution, it's becoming clear. This place is not that secure. You don't know what they were thinking, but this has been a walk in the park. So you make your way in, scope it out, and suddenly your mission is complete. What if I told you something not all too dissimilar happened in the late 2010s? was still a financial institution, but the heist we're talking about was not a physical one. And instead of a vault of cash, we have the most important details on American citizens. I'm John Cordes, and this episode, I'm going to take you back to 2017. We're going down to Atlanta, Georgia, and we're going to walk right into Equifax so we can learn about a cacophony of problems that let hackers walk almost straight into the data that was supposed to be safeguarded with the best protections out there. This week, we're going to talk about what the shell happened at Equifax and why it changed the cyber landscape as we know it. There's a lot of moving pieces to this hack, so I want to start by just setting the stage and dipping our toes in the water. I'm taking you back to March of 2017. If you're a movie buff like me, then you've probably seen Logan, Get Out, or Kong, Skull Island. We were over a year away from any kind of Infinity War happening, and if you're in the United States, then you're about two months into the presidency of Donald Trump. For me, I was starting to consider a very important question. When should I start thinking about trying to buy a house, if at all? And no, that's not a humble brag or anything like that. It was a major life choice, and I wanted to make sure it came with the right amount of forethought. And little would I know, but by the time the year was over, it was entirely possible that the dream of homeownership could just be gone like that. For any of our younger listeners, I'll give you the cliff notes on a home loan. To get a loan like that, you need a couple things. You need capital, the money for a down payment, proof of income and work, you know, the ability to say that I can keep making payments, and a good credit history. The report that says, yeah, you can trust me. I've been making these payments on time for quite a while. And don't get me started on that bit, because if you're a renter, you'd think that that would count, but more often than not, it doesn't. Anyways, I digress. In the US, there are three major agencies responsible for monitoring the credit of United States citizens. Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax. For this episode, we'll be focusing on that last one, because we're going to learn what happened when they didn't quite keep their security as tight as it should have been. 
but what exactly is Equifax besides just holding that report? Well, as I said, Equifax is one of three major credit reporting agencies in the United States, alongside Experian and TransUnion. The company plays a crucial role in the American financial system, providing a range of credit-related services that impact consumers, businesses, and the economy as a whole. It's bigger than just you and me. Any impact to a company like this is guaranteed to have ripples to hundreds of thousands of people. In this case, millions. At its core, Equifax is primarily a repository of credit information. It compiles and maintains detailed credit reports on individual consumers, documenting their borrowing and payment histories. Equifax gathers this data from various sources, like banks, credit card companies, auto lenders, and other financial institutions, as well as public records like bankruptcies and tax liens. The information collected includes details about credit card accounts, loans, mortgages, payment histories, credit limits, outstanding balances, and negative credit events. It also includes personal information, like your name, your address, your social security number, even your driver's license information, all to ensure accurate identification and attribution that these events are happening to you. Latch onto that last line real quick, because that's your impact right there. The addresses, the social security numbers, the driver's licenses, everything about you that on paper makes you, you. If Equifax is breached and your information is stolen, they have almost everything they need to know about you to start doing things like maybe apply for a credit card, try to take out a payday loan, or more, anything that could really ruin you. I know I'm talking bad about the impact, but that's not to say that they're not important, because credit reports generated by Equifax serve several critical functions. They operate as credit evaluation, you know, lenders from major banks to local credit unions, the big guys to the small guys, they all rely on Equifax's credit reports to assess an applicant's credit worthiness. That's not to judge the credit system as a whole because there are flaws, but the information helps them determine whether to approve or deny a loan applicant, and if approved, what terms they can or should offer them. It helps with risk management. Financial institutions use Equifax's data to evaluate the potential risk associated with lending to a particular individual. That kind of data-driven decision, it helps mitigate the chances of making a bad loan, which could have adverse effects on their financial stability. It's there for consumer access. Consumers have the right to access your own credit report, allowing yourself to monitor the financial standing, dispute inaccuracies, and even take steps to improve your credit score if you need to. This access is essential for individuals seeking to secure credit, housing, employment. It's basically your own health sheet. They operate as a bit of fraud prevention too. Equifax helps identify theft and credit fraud by monitoring for unusual or suspicious activity on a person's credit report. If someone tries to open a credit card in your name without your knowledge, Equifax's data can be used to detect or address this unusual or suspicious activity. Now, if only their network could do the same. A lot of companies will use it for business decisions. Companies beyond just financial institutions use Equifax's services for a myriad of purposes. Things like screening tenants, assessing business credit worthiness, and making informed decisions regarding partnerships and contracts. 
Some companies will even use these kind of reports as a assessment on whether or not it's okay to hire someone for a high value or high importance position. That's all to say that Equifax's importance in the financial system and the broader economy is undeniable. It's a titan, a pillar, a foundation of many different pieces of the country. The accuracy, timeliness, completeness of its credit reports, they all directly affect and influence the availability and affordability of credit for consumers across the country. A positive credit history leads to lower interest rates, increased access to loans, better terms on credit cards, and an overall better participation in the economy based on the individual. On the flip side, a negative credit history can limit those opportunities and limit that participation, sometimes restricting it to the point where it's almost impossible to get out. And with that level of significance established, it also highlights the proper concern that comes with it related to data privacy and security. Given the hugely sensitive nature of the information that it holds onto, Equifax and similar agencies have a responsibility to the citizens of this country to maintain stringent security measures to protect against data breaches and unauthorized access. Unfortunately, we're about to find out that the responsibility was not necessarily a mutually understood agreement. Now, I said we're starting in March, but that's not when the hack actually occurred. That won't be for another few months at this point. But one of the first big dominoes that made it possible for this all to fall over and set things in motion brought us here to March. So before we move on to the start of a hack, I want to talk about Apache. I'm not talking about a Native American tribe or a helicopter. I'm talking about a widely utilized piece of software that is the backbone of many different websites. At its core, Apache refers to the Apache HTTP server, often just shortened to Apache. It's not something you directly interact with like an application on your smartphone. Instead, it's the invisible powerhouse that makes websites and online services accessible to you acting as a middleman between your web browser and the websites you visit. Think of Apache as a web host for websites. When you type a URL into your browser, Apache is often the software that listens for that request and serves you the web page. If you want to break it down even further, I want you to think about Apache like a pizza shop. Bear with me here, okay? You're at home and you decide that you want to place an order. In this little analogy, the pizza is a website. Now, the first thing you do as someone who's hungry is call them up and place the order. You request it. Well, with a website, we'll say that instead of dialing a phone number, we're using a URL. And instead of a pizza description, you're giving a request for the website. This is what's called an HTTP request. And inside of it contains all the information that's required to make sure you get the best experience out of a website you're visiting. You can think of those as the toppings on your pizza. So that HTTP request is going to contain information like the kind of device you're accessing from, the browser you're using, and that's going to let it optimize appropriately. Maybe determine whether or not a mobile site is needed or the regular version. It'll contain what kind of connection you want and if you're sending any data or just requesting it. 
This all adds up to the metaphorical pizza place being able to get you the right order at the right time with the right toppings and it results in the right website being fed with the right look and feel. There's a lot more to it, but that's about as bare bones as I can make it. As of this year, about one third of the population of websites have Apache as a backbone. Sites like Adobe, Spotify, eBay, and yes, even parts of Equifax. That's all to say that when a security issue is presented in Apache, you act quick because not only can it impact your services big time, it's usually on the front end of the internet, directly exposed to any would-be hacker. So when on March 17th, 2017, a security bulletin rated critical came out from Apache, many companies jumped on testing and deployment. According to the bulletin itself, Apache said that it's possible to perform a remote code execution attack with a malicious content type value. If a content type value isn't valid, an exception's thrown, which is then used to display an error message to a user. The vulnerability reared itself as a part of the Apache Struts Foundation piece of software, and now it's hard not to associate Struts with this vulnerability that would define it for years to come. Let's talk about what all that meant, because I expect some of you are wondering, okay, what's a content type value? And what does the exception have anything to do with this? First off, let's talk about remote code execution. That's just saying that I can serve you something that makes your server perform an action it wasn't intended to. In this case, you are able to do that by the content type piece of that HTTP request we were discussing earlier. That's the point of entry. The hack works like this. When Apache is fed a content type that's defined as multi-part or form data, you can use the language that's structured in it to add a bit of your own code. Normally, there are safeguards to prevent code from running. It'll queue up errors or it won't register at all. But this is all sent into, in this case, a vulnerable parser. And when it gets to your code, an exception is triggered. That means everything there is passed along into an error message with the payload that you sent. And when the function is evaluated, your code in that payload could potentially run. If you're still not getting it, let me take you back to the pizza shop. Because I expect that might not have been the most straightforward explanation. If I'm ordering a pizza, I almost always would call up and ask for a large pizza with mushrooms, peppers, and onions. In that order, almost like it's a language template that I do over and over again. In this case, it's like the language that's being fed into that content type in the HTTP request. If the pizza place was vulnerable in the same way that Apache was, then I could call up and say, I want a large pizza with mushrooms, peppers, open the cash register and take out $200 and bring it to me, and onions. Then when the pizza place got through the order and went to make it, they'd get confused, look at my instructions, and get me $200 and bring it to me. Think about all the things a hacker could do here. And don't worry, if you can't, they sure did. Because within one day, there was proof of concept code, exploitation code out in the wild, and anyone could use it. I mean anyone. There's a tool called Metasploit 
out there, and it's a repository for enumeration and exploitation tools. A lot of people like to joke that it's the backbone of script kitties, but that shouldn't take away from how insanely powerful it can be. Within a day, this was a part of Metasploit, the tool that's built into so many hacking distributions, so many toolkits, and offered the ease of accessibility to use the Struts exploit code. And that meant that companies needed to be quick on their feet to patch this, because time to exploitation was no longer being written in days and weeks, it was down to hours and minutes before vulnerable servers might be identified and exploited. If this is left as it is, it's essentially an open invitation for someone to come in and set up a tunnel straight into your environment through a web server. And because this is on the internet, this request is fairly basic. It wouldn't be hard to automate the search for these kind of vulnerable servers. Speaking of vulnerable servers, Let's go back to Equifax now, because Equifax had one vulnerable server that was found quickly, and I expect would end up getting a lot more traction at the end of all of this, just based on its function. The website that we're going to talk about was Equifax's online dispute portal. That site is a web-based application that allows an individual to upload documents to research and dispute an inaccuracy in their Equifax credit report. So say that something popped up on my credit report that said, new accounts opened, and it's a credit card, but I didn't actually register it. I might go to this portal and say, hey, that wasn't me. This isn't a card in my name or that belongs to me. Please remove it. Or maybe something went to collections and it's still on the credit report, but there was an agreement with a collection agency to remove it once it was paid. This is the portal that you would go to upload documents supporting that and then get it removed. So are you starting to see how important this portal was? It kind of allowed you to fight back if you thought that anything unfair or wrong was happening. And in this case, unfortunately, it was vulnerable to the struts vulnerability. And here is where things start to get a bit interesting. I'm gonna jump forward again to something that happened after a fact. Equifax brought in a company called Mandiant after this hack. They're now owned by Google, but they were used to assist with incident response, forensics, remediation, and major efforts regarding this case. When Mandiant looked at the logs, they determined that the first successful exploitation of the Struts vulnerability against Equifax occurred on March 10th, less than two days after it was disclosed and made available on Metasploit. But that's not the hack that we're concerned about. If it was, it would almost be understandable what happened because a 24-hour patching turnaround can be tough, especially at an organization that size, that big, that prevalent. You have a lot of testing and QA that needs to be done before a change can just be rolled out like that. At least you should. But experts believe that this attempt was not our hackers. It was either an automated scanning tool or some inexperienced hackers that might not even have realized what they found. Like I said, when something is straight up exposed to the internet like this, there's a plethora of scanning tools and people looking anywhere they can for this vulnerability, and sometimes people will find it. So no, March 10th is not our date. We're going to move into May. More specifically, 
we're going to move to May 13th. This is when the next few dominoes on the line of poor practices started to rear themselves. Because just getting into the web portal doesn't inherently mean that you've got keys to the castle here. So hackers have compromised this dispute portal. And now they've got a couple options. They could smash and grab and be loud. If they wanted to, they could light up the network, probing whatever they could and trying to get anything they could out before vulnerabilities were patched and they were eradicated. The other option was they could take their time and learn to use what's on the network and understand it. In this case, that's what happened, because the timing of the breach lasted from May through July of 2017, several months. Over this period, the hackers would find two major security no-nos. The first was that there wasn't much network segmentation. Network segmentation in this case means that you'd keep servers that handle sensitive data in a part of a network that might not be accessible by servers handling standard data or non-essential tasks. It's like having no interior walls in your house, even in the bathroom. Traffic could move around without check in some cases, and it meant that when a server was popped and owned by the attackers, they would have that much more capability for persistence. The other thing that was noted as being found on the network was clear text password credentials being stored on systems. This means that somewhere in that slew of systems that were owned, there were text files that you could get into without a password, or maybe internal wikis, and they had passwords that were entirely valid with user accounts that were active. If we go back to that thief at the very beginning, it's like leaving another set of keys to a different vault as soon as you walk in in an unlocked door. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Take this server. Let's step back and tally up the failures here. We have from March 9th to May 13th, no patch had been applied to fix struts. This was critical. And not patching it was a major failure. Now, the earliest reaction from this was technically the correct one on part of Equifax. On March 9th, admins were told to apply the patch on affected systems. And that's the phrase there, affected systems. That's the critical word I want you to hold on to again. Because that phrase, affected systems, may have contributed to part of this blunder. According to statements and articles, the employee who should have done so didn't patch the vulnerability because vulnerability scans that were supposed to identify unpatched systems didn't detect this iteration. So to them, there were no affected systems. They thought everything was clear. They ran scans, but they didn't detect anything. And this could have happened if segments of a network were missing from the scans, or if the scan needed credentials and didn't get them or even if they ran the scan before the signature for detection was released to their platform. That's just some speculation on my part, but those are some common reasons why you might not see the vulnerability appear on a scan report. It's not super clear what was happening on their team beyond the fact that Equifax didn't detect the problem and didn't patch it because of that. Now that's not to take away from the fact that this was a newsworthy vulnerability and somewhere there were admins for the Apache server that should have been clued into this as well. There's more than one person at fault here. The vulnerability scan shouldn't have been the make or break piece of the story. 
someone should have had an understanding of the environment to a point that said, hey, we're running Apache, we are vulnerable. Then we have a lack of network segmentation. No security around the rooms of a house, so to speak. After that, we had plain text and easily accessible passwords. Sure, let's just give hackers keys to all the valid accounts. If it got cut off from their exploit access, now they probably had valid access. And then, there's one last thing. You see, this data is so sensitive that it needs to be encrypted in traffic. So when you're sending it across a network, you don't want anyone to be able to sit in on the network and just listen and capture the secrets. Well, Equifax used a tool that would allow for traffic to be encrypted in transit, decrypted, inspected, and monitored for suspicious activity, then re-encrypted. It's like a security check mid-route. Well, it turns out one of the components that makes up that kind of infrastructure needed to be replaced and renewed with a new certificate to validate it annually. And as it turns out, another blunder on Equifax's part, they never really did that. In fact, for this specific tool, they wouldn't even get around to identifying this problem until nearly two years later. And if that had been working, then encrypted traffic would have been inspected and may have caught the exfiltration of all the data taken from the many databases that were popped by these hackers. Because all in all, 51 databases were compromised in this hack, leading to the exposure of social security numbers, names, addresses, and more. In the breach, hackers managed to get the information of around 143 million people. More than 40% of a population of the United States. Imagine waking up one day and just all of a sudden being told that all the information you need that could help you make a financial decision had been stolen. And not only that, but odds are many of your friends and family are in the same boat. And Equifax, they didn't know they were being hacked until July 29th, over two months after this instance of exploitation of struts. Two months of continuous failure of security controls, tools, and practices. You know, there's a concept in security we talk about a lot. I think some of you might have heard of it. It's called defense in depth. The basic premise is that you don't rely on one piece of security to get you through things. You layer controls, and in a thoughtful layering of security measures, even if one is breached, there is usually another one somewhere down the line to pick up the slack or identify an issue. I've also heard of some people call it the Swiss cheese method. If you think about security as a piece of Swiss cheese, there's a hole in it that someone can look through, right? Well, if you toss another security tool in there, another piece of cheese, there might still be an available hole to look through, but because each slice of cheese is totally different, you also might've covered up a good chunk of it. And if you keep adding slices of cheese, or security controls, well, that's defense in depth. I think in this case, Equifax must have just been lactose intolerant because that Swiss cheese model failed spectacularly. And now at this point, you might be wondering, who? John, who hacked Equifax? Who are you talking about this whole time? Was it some kid out of Arkansas? Was it North Korea? Was it the Russians? Well, as the incident was playing out from a public view, several theories emerged regarding the identity of the perpetrators. But one of the most notable theories 
suggested VEVA breach was orchestrated by a state-sponsored hacking group. Those are APTs, advanced persistent threats that are sponsored by the government of the country that they're in. Think your cozy bears, your fancy bears, uh, your Lazarus groups. Some experts pointed to China's involvement due to the sophistication of the attack and the potential value of the stolen data for espionage purposes. Another theory implicated that Russian hacking group known as APT-29, or Cozy Bear, which has been associated with various high-profile cyber attacks. We've talked about it, and they do have strong links to the Russian government. That theory suggested that the breach was a part of a broader campaign to destabilize U.S. institutions and undermine public trust. Cozy Bear's modus operandi aligned with the Equifax breach, and in terms of scale and sophistication, fit the bill. Ultimately, it came to a point that cyber researchers, basing this on patterns of previously similar attacks and the United States, would attribute this to the Chinese government. In an article on CSO Online, it's noted why the Chinese government itself might be interested in something like this. They said that, quote, investigators tie the attack into two other big breaches that similarly didn't result in a dump of personally identifying data on the dark web. So the data didn't leak to the dark web. That would be the 2015 hack of the US Office of Personnel Management and the 2018 hack of Marriott's Starwood Hotel brands. All of those are assumed to be part of an operation to build a huge data lake on millions of Americans. Their own Chinese database of who is who with what credit history and what kind of things could we use here to learn about U.S. citizens, and more importantly, maybe learn about U.S. government officials and intelligence operations. They went on to continue that, in particular, evidence of American officials or spies who are in financial trouble could help Chinese intelligence identify potential targets of bribery or blackmail attempts. And back in February of 2020, the United States Department of Justice did something that was kind of unusual. They decided to formally charge four individuals who were a part of the Chinese military. This move in itself is seen as largely symbolic. It's not like China was going to extradite them out to the US for trial. After all, these were foreign intelligence officers. I think that this was largely to set a precedent that there's a new level of scrutiny being applied from the US government as a part of responses to incidents like this. And speaking of that, let's talk about the response because the US had some and the Equifax team had some and the blunders would continue. Let's start with Equifax because you'd think that after the scrutiny of a major cybersecurity blunder, they would handle everything by the book and cleanly. Well, that wasn't really the case, it seemed. They wouldn't announce the breach until September 7th about a month and a half after they learned about the attack and several months after the initial breach. The first thing they did was establish EquifaxSecurity2017.com, a site for people to go and learn about what happened. It's a great idea in theory. It contained announcements regarding the issue, frequently asked questions, and operated like a general information hub. Here's a segment of the first announcement that they put out on September 7th of 2017. Again, almost four months post the first patch. The information accessed primarily includes names, social security numbers, birth dates, addresses, and in some cases, driver's license numbers. 
in addition, credit card numbers for approximately 209,000 US consumers and certain dispute documents with personally identifying information for approximately 182,000 US customers were accessed. As a part of its investigation of this application vulnerability, Equifax also identified unauthorized access to limited personal information for certain UK and Canadian residents. Equifax will work with UK and Canadian regulators to determine the appropriate next steps. The company has found no evidence that personal information of consumers in any other country has been impacted. So that's saying that we're limiting the scope. They went on to say that Equifax discovered the unauthorized access on July 29th of this year and acted immediately to stop the intrusion. The company promptly engaged a leading independent cybersecurity firm that has been conducting a comprehensive forensic review to determine the scope of the intrusion, including the specific data impacted. Equifax has also reported the criminal access to law enforcement and continues to work with the authorities. While the company's investigation is substantially complete, it remains ongoing and is expected to be completed in the coming weeks. Then it went on for a quote from the CEO. This is clearly a disappointing event for our company and one that strikes at the heart of who we are and what we do. I apologize to consumers and our business customers for the concern and frustration this causes. That was said by Chairman and Chief Executive Officer Richard F. Smith. He went on to say, we pride ourselves in being a leader in managing and protecting data, and we are conducting a thorough review of our overall security operations. We also are focused on consumer protection and have developed a comprehensive portfolio of services to support all US consumers, regardless of whether or not they were impacted by this incident. So we're getting fairly standard corporation speak here, but it does strike me as odd that it almost seemed like they were trying to downplay the incident a little bit and downplay the impact. Then they went on to say almost immediately after that downplaying how massive the breach is. And there would continue to be some interesting blunders coming up too, because after the domain was registered, EquifaxSecurity2017.com, they didn't really bother registering similar domain names. So they made Equifax Security 2017, but they didn't think about maybe getting Security Equifax 2017 or 2017 Equifax Security. This might not have come to your immediate thoughts, but as a security practitioner, this kind of domain lookalike hijacking is super common. Well, Nick Sweeting, a software engineer, decided to buy one of the lookalike domains and make it look like a real page. Lucky for everyone, it was largely the same page. He copied most of it verbatim and it wasn't malicious. Some of the only differences were the inclusion of lines like, why did Equifax use a domain name that's so easily impersonated by phishing sites? Sweeting received over 100,000 hits on the website and it would go so far as to be tweeted out as a place to monitor your status by the official Equifax account. That's right, the official Equifax Twitter would post multiple tweets directing users to this site that wasn't theirs. So imagine the number of actual phishing campaigns that would start to pop up using sites that looked like it and using the same tactics to try to get people to click on their links. I've got a picture of one of the tweets up on the website in the transcript of the episode at whattheshellpod.com. Go take a look. It's pretty funny. I'll also be posting it to the show's Instagram if you want to see that, but that's at shell underscore pod. And there was one other piece on the website that was found 
that was kind of scummy. It turns out Equifax wanted to try and shake as much legal liability from you as they possibly could, because in the terms of use on the website, there was this section that read, quote, Agreement to resolve all disputes by binding individual arbitration. Please read this entire section carefully because it affects your legal rights by requiring arbitration of disputes, except as set forth below, and a waiver of the ability to bring or participate in a class action, class arbitration, or other representative action. Arbitration provides a quick and cost-effective mechanism for resolving disputes, but you should be aware that it also limits your right to discovery and appeal. So by checking, if you're impacted, you cannot sue. It's Schrodinger's class action, man. Just sign on and hope that you're impacted because if you check it, they are trying to say that you are not allowed to sue them. They tried a little bit, I think, to help. They offered a way to freeze your credit if you wanted to, make it so that changes couldn't happen. You would have to unfreeze it if you wanted to do anything. They gave free credit monitoring through them and only for a year. I mean, come on, you gotta be reasonable with a company that leaked your entire identity, right? What are they gonna do? Give it to you for life? And after all was said and done, the class action lawsuit was actually won and Equifax had to pay out to its victims. But do you wanna know how much money was given to victims for this? $125 per victim. Your personal information, your identity, was worth less than $150 when all is said and done, plus some short-term band-aids that they gave. This was a victory, but also seemed like such a slap in the face. The company continues to be okay and continues to be fine, while citizens have to live their lives with the possibility that they could wake up one day and just be in financial ruin. But let's wrap up with that and see what ended up happening at Equifax overall. What did this really cost them? Well, the C-level leadership, they would end up almost being entirely rolled over. That included at least one executive that was charged with insider trading after making decisions in preparation for the announcement of the incident. The lawsuit landed them between half and three quarter of a billion dollars in payouts. And lastly, they spent a whopping $1.4 billion on incident response. That included new systems, security tools, and new employees to help cover that process. So let's call it a cool $2 billion. There you have it, a $2 billion price tag for 40% of a country's personal data. An interesting metric to think about. I think I'm done with the Equifax side of things because this is kind of sad. I don't like this story. I don't like that Equifax gets to keep going and that this is still a problem, that companies are still woefully ill-prepared for incidents like this sometimes. I want to get into this week's end prompt from the community. The question I got this week comes from the show's Instagram. It came from a user named A Bird's Eye View. They asked, what's really good with this WinRAR threat? Now, that's a vague question to a lot of you, I think, but here's a little bit of background. I'm assuming this question is asking what the deal is with a recent news about WinRAR being hugely exploited. Let's start at the top. WinRAR is a massively popular file archiving tool. If you don't use WinRAR, you might use 7-Zip, or if you're a sociopath, maybe just a regular Windows extraction tool. But basically, if you have a .zip file, this is a tool 
that can be used to unzip that or archive a bunch of files in smaller, singular, compressed archives. You put a lot of big files into one small container. There's a lot more to it than that, but that's the crux of the application. Well, back in August of this year, RAR Labs patched a vulnerability that it turned out had been exploited since at least April. The way the vulnerability works was a little bit complex, but I'm going to do my best to explain it as I understand it. The vulnerability took advantage of when WinRAR would expand certain archives in some situations, depending on how the files were structured and combined with unique circumstances. They would utilize these circumstances in conjunction with how Windows operated, and it only occurred when certain kinds of files were opened as a part of the extraction. I'm going to take this example from the Google write-up on how it works, because I think it's simple, and I can include a screenshot from it so you kind of understand what I'm talking about. I'll put that on the website as well. The exploit itself relies on spaces in the file archive. When I say spaces, I mean spaces in the name, in the structure. If you have an archive, for example, that contains POC, like proof of concept, .png, but with a space after PNG, and you also have a directory called poc.png with a space, then the way WinRAR handles that is that it's going to look at both of those, see the directory name matches that selected initial file name, and instead of operating how it normally would, it's going to extract both the selected file and the files inside of that directory to a random temporary directory. Now, normally that in and of itself isn't too bad, but in this case, imagine if in that directory, there was a subfile with the same name again, but a .cmd extension. So that's poc.png space .cmd. Little bit of a mouthful, I know, but the screenshot makes it make sense, trust me. That cmd is a command line script, and it might contain, in this case, a malicious payload. You know, code that when opened up would run and potentially cause some hazard to your machine. So when Windows now is handling this expansion, it's supposed to call a couple of certain internal functions to support it. I won't get into that too heavily. You don't need to know the specific names, but basically in this case, we're tricking Windows into looking into that directory, finding and executing the first file with an extension matching any of the hard-coded ones to specific Windows functions. In this case, there's one function that looks for an extension of either .pif, .com, .exe, .bat, .lnk, and .cmd, most of those all being various forms of command execution extensions. And then, the way Windows would handle it is if they found a file matching that, it would run. In this case, it's looking for poc.png. If we think back to the file structure, it's seeing that poc.png space.cmd, and then it's going to execute it. It's going to run it. Now, where this all made waves was that this exploit chain has been used for quite a while. One of the major groups using it was Russia. The specific group in their armed forces was Sandworm, a segment of their military's general staff. Recently, they've successfully used it to launch a phishing campaign impersonating a Ukrainian drone warfare training school. They used it as a lore, themed as an invitation to join the school, and the email contained a link to an anonymous file sharing service which delivered a benign 
decoy PDF document with a drone operating training curriculum. But it also delivered a malicious zip file, exploiting that vulnerability. On top of that, intelligence sources became aware of this vulnerability being used to target critical infrastructure and financial institutions around the world, including the United States. So we've got a lot of active exploitation going on in areas that can make a large impact. I think that's why it's making the rounds a lot. So bird's eye view, when you get a vulnerability like this that weeds its way out of the cyber specific news and into the public limelight, it tends to be prioritized more heavily. That's why you're seeing such high coverage of it. That's when you'll have executives occasionally piping in and asking where you stand with this vulnerability. The big problem is actually similar to struts here because proof of concept is relatively easy to find on this. You'll see a lot of exploitation of it. And fortunately, that also means you'll see a lot of controls to try to prevent it. But as we've seen, sometimes those controls can fail. To sum it up, high value target plus a lot of news plus easy exploitation always results in people making a lot of noise about things. Hope that gave just a little bit of insight to it. So that's it for this week. I'm John Cordes, and I hope you've got a better idea of what happened with Equifax now and learned a little bit about how even the largest and most powerful institutions can be woefully unprepared. If you've taken the time to listen up to here, thank you. If you want to chat about the episode, please join us on Discord. The link is in the description of the episode. I love engaging with everyone over there. And if you want, the link's here on my website. And you can find it on Instagram at shell underscore pod. Really, I just enjoy having you all as a part of this little community. I'm happy to be back and producing more episodes. And I think you are too, because you guys have been listening more. Somehow with less episodes, I'm getting more views than I ever have. And I appreciate that from everyone. There's a couple of you that I want to thank in particular. And those are the people who are supporting me on Patreon. JS, Steven, Kilby, Frank, Adon, Ben Sweetenham, Ben M, John, Pseudo, RKAFLD, the XUB, and last but never not least, quote, I use Pot of Greed to draw free additional cards from my deck. Thank you. If you want to join their ranks, you can find me at patreon.com slash whatmichelle. But for now, I'm going to keep this truck rolling. I have two episodes planned for you in November and a bonus piece of content that I'm working on that I'm going to be a little bit hush-hush on for now. But if you want to know more about it, join us in the Discord.